Thanks for having us here today, Professor Strick. We're going to talk to you about your two latest books, uh, Buying Time, published in 2013, uh, and How Will Capitalism End, which is published in 2016. Um, I've read both of them, uh, and I found them really interesting and insightful, and I can recommend them to, to our listeners. Um, essentially, in these books, you focus on the recent history of capitalist development, offer a, a diagnosis of the current state of affairs, especially about the undercutting of democracy and of capitalism itself by recent capitalist development. And then you also offer a prognosis, so to speak, of, of a vision of the future um, based on, on how you see what you call capitalism's multiple morbidities playing out. And I think a good place to start might be at the beginning. Um, I thought it was a really interesting analogy that captures well the uh, changes in capitalist social relations over the past 60 years is your description of the changes that have occurred as a process of capitalists getting their hunting permit back. Can you explain the, why you choose to use these words in this description? Of course, um, it, it, yeah, it, it's a metaphor. Um, and what it, uh, the, the meaning it carries is a twofold one. Um, the first, uh, capitalism is about creative destruction. That is uh, about entrepreneurial activities that uh, destroy existing social relations and replace them with more productive ones. Uh, th this is Schumpeter, not me. And uh, uh, th the same process is described by Marx in with the concept of plus making. Um, capitalism is about making a profit. And in order to make a profit, you have to what Marx calls exploit uh, society, what Schumpeter uh, calls uh, creatively destroy social relations that um, uh, are then replaced with more efficient uh, uh, um, uh, uh, arrangements that yield a plus. Yeah. So in that sense, I describe uh, capitalists uh, uh, as, uh, as hunters in a so in a world in which they hunt for profit. And that's what they do. That's what they should do as capitalists. That's, in a, in a sense, their profession. The second meaning is, uh, in, in this metaphor, uh, is that uh, um, this uh, uh, plus-making or profit-hunting takes place in a society, and it needs to be licensed. In, in other words, society has to tolerate this. Um, now, when will uh, societies do this? Uh, when will they, in, in other words, issue a license for creative destruction? That is when they uh, can expect uh, the benefits uh, of, the, of the hunt, of the chase for profit, to be at least, uh, to be, if not equally, but then uh, 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 in, in, in a somewhat egalitarian way, be distributed so that everybody else can also benefit. Uh, not everybody can be a capitalist. Capitalists need non-capitalists in order to be capitalists. That is what Marx calls workers. You can also call them consumers today or what, what, whatever. Without this, there can be no capitalism. And then sort of societies that can... Uh, societies insist on... Uh, or try to insist through their politics uh, that they do not only carry the burden and the, the costs of the hunt uh, and that they not be the hunted, so to speak, uh, but that they will share in, in, the, in the benefits. Yeah? So, so that's what this metaphor means, the renewal of the hunting license of capitalism or capitalists after the Second World War. Let me add, why, why after the Second World War? The, the, uh, the, the two world wars were a time where capitalists on the one hand made a lot of money, or some of them, but on the other hand, they, were, um, uh, so they, they had come under the control of what you call the war economy. Uh, that is an enormous uh, amount of state intervention. Uh, coming together with an enormous empowerment of the masses of the societies who, in, the, in those two wars, were 
uh, fighting uh, on behalf of their countries. And, and in order for them to do this, you had to promise them that after the war, uh, many social uh, maladies that, that existed in the past will be cured by social uh, policies, social reform. So, for example, Americans coming back from the, from the front uh, and the, the black uh, soldiers that were servicemen who were serving in black uh, units in, in, in the war came back and they <laughs> emphasized that they had sort of died the same death as their uh, white uh, fellow uh, citizens. So they wanted the same workers. Uh, uh, workers didn't want to be unemployed after the war, after they had risked their, their lives for the country. And, and so you see reform movements, both in the winning uh, countries, uh, England, uh, with uh, the uh, creation of collective bargaining, the, the welfare state, uh, Keynesian uh, political economy, but also in the defeated countries where capitalists had lost their prestige because they had worked with the fascist uh, uh, government. So yes, um, uh, there was a need after 1945 to restore capitalism. Uh, and it was not clear that that would uh, necessarily be welcome to the masses of the people. So that you make con concessions in return for the license renewal. And much of your work, especially I think in, in buying time, is an account of how that um, social settlement, let's say, uh, bega be began unraveling uh, in the 70s. Uh, can you just describe a little bit about your thoughts around um, how that happened and, and then why? Um, in all the Western countries, you see during the uh, 1950s and 1960s, a growing strength on the part of, of labor and social democracy. Uh, in the United States, that uh, uh, culminated in the uh, era of Lyndon uh, Johnson. Uh, in, um, in, in Western Europe, it was the 1960s where unions became ever more powerful. And in the late 1960s, we had, 1968, we had uh, widespread uh, strike waves in, in England, in Germany, in, in Italy, in France. In France, almost the Gaullist government in 1968 uh, toppled be, uh, because of the uh, three or four weeks uh, general strike uh, in, in, in France. This was a period in which it became clear to capital that uh, um, what, 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 what I call their transformation into milk cows, so to speak. Yeah, in, in milk, milk cows. In milk yeah. cows, mm. yeah. Their transformation <laughs> into, into um, uh, stable, into animals uh, uh, being used for... Uh, the consumption to provide for the consumption of the workers that was not welcome to them so so their sort of hunting uh, spirit uh, re revived and and you see in all these countries uh, in the late 1960s uh, an attempt on the part of of business uh, to get rid of um, uh, trade unions, uh, social regulation, um, an ever-growing social welfare state, and so on. Um, let me describe this in, in the following way. Uh, now, I began to say that, um, that uh, capitalism is a process of permanent transformation of social relations. Yeah? You can also call this rationalization, uh, uh, extracting more and more resources for profit-making. Uh, the, um, the traditional attitude of human societies in which this sort of arrangement appears exotic is the subsistence economy. Uh, the, the, the origin, you produce only as much as you customarily mm -hmm. need. Mm -hmm. yeah? uh, and, and capitalism, as Karl Marx shows in Volume 1, is the world historical unique world historical uh, uh, emergence of a society that uh, empowers a class that is in permanent conflict with the tendency of normal people to prefer a subsistence economy, namely one in which you essentially uh, use productivity increases to work less rather than consume more. Yeah? And 
and the, the, the capitalist societies and the politics in such societies can basically be described as a permanent struggle between the lazy, normal people like us, who, who, who are not really uh, fundamentally interested in others making more profit, and the profit-hunting uh, uh, capitalists, who are never always restless. Uh, they, they always want to improve things. They, they want us to be competitive. They want us to compete more, yeah, to save. To whereas the other the poor guys simply want to want to have their peace and quiet, yeah. Now, now this struggle is at the bottom uh, of a capitalist of the of a capitalist society. It can be expressed in different terms. Weber calls it Weber calls it rationalization uh, as as opposed to traditionalism. Yeah, that's the big axis of of Weberian. Reconstruction of modern uh, societies. Marx calls it exploitation versus uh, communal uh, communal satisfaction, so to speak, or communism. Yeah, communism is nothing else than uh, putting this process to a rest. Uh, as as Marx in this uh, strange um, uh, aphorism uh, says. It, it, we only will work only in the morning and in the afternoon we uh, write poetry and uh, and so on and so on mm -hmm. and <laughs> and this is essentially you don't don't have to write poetry but but the idea was to have more free space where you don't that you don't uh, invest in uh, in 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 rational production mm -hmm. you you just live now back it, to subsistence at a yeah, higher level yeah, of, of yeah, development yeah 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 yeah, yeah that, absolutely uh, and and um, uh, in the late 1960s and 90s and in the 1970s in europe you see a burgeoning literature that is about uh, uh, cutting working time mm -hmm. it is about freedom from work uh, combined with freedom inside work, that is, make work more self-determined by the worker, so that it is also uh, something that is pleasant in itself, not only for its monetary outcomes. And my hunch would be that if you if you would study this uh, sort of from the perspective of a social historian, you would see that at this point. There was a certain saturation reached. Um, uh, the people talked about the end of poverty, war on poverty. Lyndon Johnson, we eradicate poverty. Yeah, uh, there was the idea of an end uh, to disease. Uh, we now have the, the the resources to do this. It doesn't have to go into into consumption or individual. It goes into the collective good of eradicating uh, poverty and disease. Mm -hmm. And I think this utopian element in the 1970s was a severe threat to the capitalist system because it was in contradiction of this uh, uh, permanent pressure of making profit. Yeah, That was much more about uh, redistribution of existing productivity. Also, it began at the time, early 1970s, that people began to think about the environment. And, and remember the Club of Rome. Yeah? And in, in, in Europe, the, uh, there, were, there was a debate about the, the limits to growth, which had to do with this idea, do we need more growth? Or do we need uh, rather to use it better, yes, and I think uh, uh, th th this was the this sort of turning historical turning point at which capital became extremely nervous because its role. I mean, the the, the continuation of the kind of political projects that you just described, yeah. Kind of depended on on the perpetuation of, of capitalist roles as a milk cow, yeah, or on transcending even capitalist social relations. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the point. Um, and uh, I'd also like to talk to you a little bit about uh, the kind of changes in state governance of the economy and the roles of states, which are very active players in in the fifties, the sixties, and the seventies in this kind of system uh, that, that you just described. 
Uh, could you talk to me, because there's, there's an interesting kind of progression, or historical progression, in terms of where the resources come from and how the state manages to access them and how it manages to redistribute them, uh, which you, you talk of in terms of a transition from the tax state to the debt state yeah. to the consolidation state and so on. Yeah. Could you just talk us through that, that progression? Because I think it's crucial for, to understand the point that we are at at the moment. Absolutely. And, and uh, looking back at this turning point of the late 1960s, early 1970s, when economies were basically contained in national states, and I described that situation as markets embedded in states. At that point, governments were able to ever more deeply tax uh, the economy for collective purposes. The, in, in Sweden and in the United States, very high incomes were, were taxed at the level of 90%. 90. Mm-hmm. Now, you had all sorts of tax lawyers that, that could... Uh, unimaginable now. Yeah, unimaginable. Now, how do you get... Uh, how do you force national states not to tax the resources from the private sector in order to build collective goods? How do you do this? Especially in a democracy where you cannot uh, immediately do away with the democracy. Now, internationalization is an answer to this. The moment you get the states to compete with each other, in other words, no longer embedding markets into states, but states into markets, no global markets, then this notion of competitiveness can be used to justify Reagan-style tax reforms. And it can be even used to sell to the very people who would have stood to benefit from uh, a growth in public rather than private production. Yeah? Because they uh, can be told that now they have to compete for their jobs with workers in other countries. Yeah? So the, uh, the internationalization, I describe the internationalization of, of the, of the uh, capitalist economy in the 1970s as the first step of capital out of the cages where they were kept in order to be milked, mm-hmm. yes? And um, in order to turn again into what they really were, they needed a free market, free market, yeah? And, and free markets did no longer exist in countries, even in the United States. They were, uh, so they were regulated, controlled by all sorts of forces, social policy, the government, but the global economy was one where there were no uh, unions. In fact, you can destroy unions in the global economy because, because uh, as John R. Commons, the, the great American institutional economist at, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, as John R. Commons said, a union can exist only if it covers each and every individual firm in a given market, in a given industry. Imagine. And, of course, the moment you have international markets, unions cannot uh, organize the entire market. Uh, in, in fact, they begin to compete with each other. Uh, so, and then they compete in alliance with their employers, which is fine for the employers, because the employers can always say, look, guys, we want to protect your, uh, your jobs, but unfortunately, uh, we pay only one-third in India. So uh, if you accept a little lower wage, we might be able to keep your jobs here. And we want to fight together with you for your employment. Yeah. All this under the general heading of the necessity of profit in order to attract investment, which is the whole game of the of the hunting, uh, the hunting dogs or the or the hunters, <laughs> they come only where there is uh, someone to shoot. Mm-hmm. They don't do it for for free. And and so yes, uh, um, the, the the internationalization was, I think, uh, the the turning point that then begins to characterize the subsequent decades of the introduction of 
all sorts of uh, reforms, quote-unquote, designed to increase the mutual competitiveness of uh, national economies uh, in a larger uh, global market. At the same time, politics in these societies had to make sure that the empowered labor force didn't break away and sort of race uh, begin to start insurrections. So politics in this period becomes a very complicated conflict management that needed to make possible the competitive transformation of these national economies, while at the same time keeping labor not necessarily peaceful, but uh, uh, trying to build competitive alliances between labor and capital so you didn't have civil industrial civil war. Mm -hmm. So how do you do this? The 1970s uh, was a period of high inflation. Inflation is a way of papering over distributional uh, conflict. Then inflation became too dangerous for the economy because uh, in an inflationary world, you don't want to have the money, you, you can't calculate your profit and your money anymore, and, and your money gets worth less and less. Capitalists do not like inflation. Yeah? Workers sometimes do. Can you just explain to our listeners why this is? Um, one, why is inflation a way of papering over distributional yeah. conflict? And secondly, why do capitalists not like inflation? Um, inflation papers over conflict uh, in that um, uh, what it does is incre it increases uh, the uh, sum of money in an economy without uh, uh, a corresponding increase in the production of this economy. It, it causes what Keynes calls a money illusion. And with the money illusion, workers see that they sort of have 10% every year. Their wages can more. continue rising. Their wages continue even rising. Even if productivity... Even if productivity doesn't, doesn't, doesn't catch up. So for a while, this is fine for them. Yeah? Especially if you have employment protection laws in, mm -hmm. in, in, in place. It's also acceptable for capitalists because they can raise their prices. But if over the long, in the long term, uh, you can no longer calculate uh, really how much what your money is worth and you have to make very complicated sort of calculations uh, as to what my uh, money now would mean in three so it hinders years. investment yeah of, it hinders investment yeah. and that in turn affects employment so you can't do this for long you can do this just for a little time and then sort of in the united states 1980 uh, with the um, uh, turned from the Carter to the Reagan administration, uh, inflation was stamped out by, by the, the, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, I think, to roughly 20% or more, mm. yeah, causing enormous unemployment. Uh, the deindustrialization of the United States begins at that point. Yeah? And in, in order to keep uh, capitalists happy, um, uh, they also uh, increased the public uh, deficit by, by cutting taxes for the rich. Yeah. And, and then you, you get, as, a, uh, as an effect of all this, you get an enormous increase in public debt, which sort of is the second, uh, the second um, uh, instrument after inflation to keep um, public, uh, to, to keep uh, distributional conflicts Papered over. And then, is drawing the debt from the people it used to tax. Yeah, that is, that is another interesting uh, aspect. Uh, capitalists or people with money are not necessarily opposed to, to public debt because uh, public debt uh, is the substitute for high taxes. Uh, the state finances itself by debt. And where do they borrow? They borrow with, from those who, through tax reform, now have all sorts of money to invest and they want to invest it safely. Why not give it to the state? At the same time, keep it, get interest on it and pass it over to your children. Yeah? It's much more preferable uh, to, to paying taxes. Yes? But, but then uh, you cannot do this forever either. Uh, as the, the debt load of, of states increases more and more, um, uh, creditors begin to become nervous. 
uh, in the eyes of uh, uh, of investors, uh, the states as uh, uh, takers of credit have a big disadvantage in the eyes of the of of, of the uh, the creditors. That is, uh, they can unilaterally cancel that, which you cannot if you go to a bank. Private debt doesn't work like this. Mm -hmm. The, in, in the past, you used to send uh, a, a few Navy uh, ships to a country that had cancelled its, its debt and then they paid. Mm -hmm. but, but that is no longer uh, uh, possible. Uh, or sometimes it is, but, but that is not the preferred solution. The preferred solution is that uh, governments begin to consolidate their, their, their budgets. Uh, in other words, they, they cut spending, public spending so that uh, they can credibly promise that um, if and when uh, creditors want their money back, they'll be able to pay. Yeah? But in the 1980s and 1990s, you saw uh, public uh, debt rising everywhere in the Western world to a point where investors became nervous. Oh, my God. Yeah? Did, will, will they ever be able to pay? So then you get a wave of fiscal consolidation, which I call fiscal consolidation Roman one. Uh, but then, if you consolidate fiscally, then people who who had uh, received, for example, social security benefits out of out of uh, a deficitarian public budget, that that is cut for them. They you, 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 you aren't able to pay for them. You aren't able to pay for education. You aren't able to pay for all those things. So what happens then? Then. And, and the financial industry became extremely excited about this. Mm -hmm. What you do is you deregulate the financial markets so that people, rather than getting money from the state, can borrow More on their own cards. account. Credit cards, uh, student loans, uh, uh, all, all sorts of house, housing mortgages. Yeah? And, and then you get public debt goes down and then pri private debt goes up. That was my period number three. It's another way of papering over conflict. There is not uh, uh, you d d d borrowing basically means that you consume things now that you only produce later, and the financial industry invents all sorts of tricky ways of bri of bridging this this gap in time. Yeah, the same way in which uh, uh, public uh, uh, debt uh, bridges the gap in uh, public consumption and public taxation. Uh, at the present time, but now you stretch it out into mm -hmm. time, and and that can work only so long. Uh, and in two thousand eight, you saw we saw in two thousand. Yeah, it, 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 now we are in, pay, in phase four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, phase four is called quantitative easing, and and the, the central banks of Japan, of Europe, of the United States, they are producing money as though there was no tomorrow. Yeah, and they do this by buying up. Uh, uh, debt from private and public uh, uh, entities. So, so now uh, uh, the the balance sheets of, of the central banks are so at a historical uh, record high. Uh, in, in in sort of ten years, they tripled. Uh, they they buy the debt and then they give pay, give cash for them. Where does the cash come from? Central banks can make cash. Uh, they they just print it, quote unquote. And I think you refer, I'm not sure in, in which of the, of the two books, but at one point I think you refer to the policy of helicopter money, which is essentially yeah. dropping money into people's bank accounts directly yeah. as the potential end of capitalist wisdom in this respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it was seriously discussed in, in, in the same way as they seriously discussed uh, uh, negative interest rates yeah, in order to get people to, to spend money. Yeah, it gets you to a point, for example, where the notion, the, 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 the capitalist virtue of saving money in order to invest it totally loses any meaning. Money is now simply produced by buying debt. Yeah? <laughs> it also, if it came from a helicopter, you couldn't imagine that this is the result of hard work. Yeah? It just is being given to you in, in order for you to consume. And now con consumption becomes sort of dissociated from, uh, uh, from production or from work, at, at least for the time being. So I wanted to, let's get into the sort of 
the future or looking to the future uh, in a while. I just want to hold you on, on this point, on this transition, uh, which is really interesting, you know, from states that could raise tax and, and engage in social policy through that to states that issue bonds and, and, uh, and, and you know, so these changes... Um, uh, of basically papering over the cracks and, and creating sort of bigger problems in, in yeah. that, that you sort of solve uh, by kicking the can down the road. Yeah. Um, so this this your, your books were taking as a, have been received as a revival of of, of crisis theory, which uh, for our yeah. listeners is essentially the study of capitalism's internal contradictions and seeks to provide explanations for the inherent instability and crises that, that capitalism poses and how they are solved through temporal fixes. Yeah. And, you know, a great part of, of your book in Buying Time is precisely about that. Um, could you explain what, what the essence of, of, your, of your crisis theory is, where, where the contradiction lies? You said earlier around the uh, need for capitalists to uh, commodify, um, uh, to, ins- to, to capitalise, uh, all aspects of social life, uh, whilst at the same time, uh, workers uh, being the people that consume. Is this where the 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 nugget is? Is this where the yeah. sort of seed is, or do you have a different kind of crisis? No, theory? I think I think uh, there are different layers of abstraction, uh, of course. And what I want to say at the outset is that crisis theory is not necessarily a left uh, theory. Like if you take John Maynard Keynes, who was a bourgeois, who saw himself as a bourgeois economist. Uh, or um, someone like uh, Schumpeter, they they were convinced that capitalism is a system of struggle between different interests where the outcome is not necessarily predetermined, so that uh, a lot of politics had to be inserted for this to be stable, and a lot of repair work had to be performed. Now, uh, uh, Keynes, incidentally, was... uh, optimistic in the sense that uh, he thought that at some stage, and and he located this around 1980, yeah, uh, around 1980, the the productivity of the capitalist economy would be such that nobody, nobody would want to increase it anymore. The only thing was to allocate work so that everybody uh, had uh, four hours a day, so mm-hmm. to so to speak, to to do productive work, and and uh, there would be a few madmen left, he he said, who who wanted to uh, uh, to lord it over their bank account, mm-hmm. yeah, and and that would be considered he Keynes uh, said as a sort of aberration of the mind, yeah, behind this is this idea of a subsistence economy at a very high level of. Um, of productivity, he could not imagine that uh, the ruling classes of a capitalist society would come up with all sorts of contraptions by which to make people not believe in the possibility of this sort of pacification of the economy, by which to motivate them to keep on working and work ever harder, although all their basic material needs are met. And, and that is uh, what I call the, uh, the conflict between two different uh, rationalities. That is at the bottom, I think, of a capitalism. And, and these two different rationalities can be expressed like this. Usually, when, if, you, if you take a course in economics, the principle of rationality is explained to you to uh, uh, maximize the output of your labor, yeah? whereas uh, an equally valid but uh, sort of culturally suppressed uh, version of rationality would be to minimize the input of your labor mm-hmm. uh, for a given outcome. Yeah? In other words, input minimization or output maximization are both rational or can be a moment, an element that you subject to rational mathematics. Yeah, calculate how little effort you need in order to reproduce the existing uh, level of satisfaction, or calculate how much you can squeeze out of existing resources if you want to maximize mm-hmm. the outcome. Both equally rational. Yeah, but um, uh, the the social struggle 
about social norms, social ways of life, about status assigned, uh, status uh, achievement in a society. Yeah, that would always be very different for these two worlds. Yeah, but we live in an output maximization world. Although we now see the limits of maximization, for example, in the in the lives of people, in the uh, in the desperate um, uh, inventions uh, to make people uh, into lifelong debtors that pay off that pay off their their loans for for the rest of their lives, yeah, and uh, uh, in in the mentalities of people, these are two very different things. I only want to say that the the interesting, or I want to add that the the interesting uh, observation that Max Weber makes is that this attitude of uh, a relentless output maximization is unique in the history of mankind. It originated in the 16th century in Europe, says Weber, and it's bizarre and exotic if you look at it from other from other. Uh, parts of the world, yes, and now it sort of has begun. You, you could say the cancer has begun to spread mm -hmm. all around the world, mm -hmm. yeah, for all sorts of reasons. But there's clear limits to that, isn't there, in terms of, of to the yeah. maximization approach, because labor needs to be reproduced, and yes. it can be in uh, contrast to the amount in which it can maximize its output. And, you know, there's also clear, clear and present um, pressures on on nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and, but 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 don't underestimate. Let's call it. Let's call the beast capitalism. Don't underestimate. So, for example, when it comes to squeezing labor. For 150 years, uh, people have looked at uh, labor regimes and they've said that this is sort of at the, uh, at, at the wall. You can't go further. And you can. Further in terms of... In terms of squeezing more... Squeezing more... More out Production. Of, yeah, yeah, of. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, I know you all have these uh, wonderful mo mobile phones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can be reached anywhere. You can do your you, you can work at home, you can work during dinner. And then and you can educate people to think that this is progress. If you say to people that uh, basically I think you've got everything you need, why why do you still want to make more money? Then you can sort of condition them in such a way that they would answer, but the future is so uncertain, I need to accumulate as much. Uh, as I can today, because I don't know whether I will be out of a job in, in two or three. And you can, you can kind of design labor markets in such a way that people actually behave in this in this way. And and I'm not saying this uh, for, for for nothing. You you have sort of uh, behavioral behavioral psychologists, behavioral economists, the the nudging people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have an entire industry. Of human resource managers, of uh, compensation packages, yeah, that are precisely working on this particular problem, incentivizing people to continue taking to continue, part, uh, to, and and to, <laughs> to uh, you, you know, um, the one um, sort of an anecdote um, when I was a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison for. Uh, in, in the early 1990s, I, I was working on uh, on basically industrial relations, that is um, uh, labor management and, and so on. So um, I think it was General Motors that was setting up the new plant in, in southern Wisconsin. And, and they, on the sort of greenfield side, with, I remember, let's say 1,000 1, uh, workers um, at the outset to, to start with. And then they sort of advertised for uh, for, for workers. Uh, I, I became interested in how they select these uh, these uh, one thousand, and I went there and asked the personnel manager how many applications he had. He said you roughly one hundred thousand. I said one hundred thousand. And however, do how do you get to a short list? And he said, oh, basically that's not so difficult. Um, first of all, they can't be in a union. And I said, yeah, but obviously, <laughs> I understand that. Secondly, they should be married. Um, 
okay, I, I, I thought family, fathers, and so on, fine. And then what's second? What's third? So he said they have to have a mortgage. And I said, stupid as I was, I, I asked, why a mortgage? <laughs> and he says, workers on mortgage or the mortgage don't don't mm -hmm. strike. Yeah. Yeah. They need to pay off the mortgage. Debt dependent. Yeah. And for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You can rely on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's another sort of incentivizing way. And and uh, economic sociology with a sort of political economy perspective is the art of detecting these uh, uh, social norms and social constellations and structures of constraint and opportunity that condition entire societies into this entirely unnatural behavior mm -hmm. of continuing to maximize at a time when satisficing would be all you need. Yeah, and there's a very there's a passage I I um I, I really enjoyed reading in How Will Capitalism End, uh, where you basically argue that 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 you know that capitalism is dying from an overdose of itself, but but also where you foresee a, a period of what you call a prolonged social entropy. Yeah, I guess explain that, but but also how do individuals respond or adapt to this situation of social entropy? I really liked the passage on coping, hoping doping and shopping yeah because <laughs> I, I felt myself reflected in that as well i thought actually yeah, this yeah, is like yeah. i can behave like this as well yeah, yeah, yeah. and people that, around me i see behaving in this as well. see that's yeah. a speculative part of the book yeah, uh, yeah. but but it uh, uh, maybe i uh, i say something on the context of this today in the crisis of in what you could call the crisis of capitalism and i will make clear how i mean this there is no uh, a socialist, organized socialist movie, uh, movement or, or a communist party or whatever, like in the movies, uh, standing at the door in order to take over. Yeah? We're, the crisis of capitalism is one that is endogenous. It has nothing to do with the mobilized working class. But what it is, is uh, that its institutions, uh, we, we talked about uh, uh, the conflict management through government, we talked about uh, uh, the, the senseless money production, the, the debt, uh, the, the rising debt, uh, the rising inequality that is wrapped into the debt, the ungovernability of the global financial system, the uh, reducing of national uh, states and governments to, you, you could say, uh, figures of uh, ridicule. Yeah? Uh, they, all they can tell you is we have to look what the world market is doing and then we do what they want us to do, ridicule. Yeah? What we see there is that the institutional architecture of this society ceases to be able to organize or to give some structure to the everyday life of people. People are left to their own devices. Yeah? And the post-war political economy was one in which important aspects of the individual life were politicized. That is, you had sort of public education systems, you, you had this. Now increasingly they are being told, we cannot do this for you, you have to do it. Uh, and, then, uh, and then you begin to wonder, uh, when, when I call this, this is what I call entropy, that is sort of institutionally, globally produced disorder. And what do people do? that live in such a world where there's no reliable structures anymore. They have to develop a certain kind of character that is able to survive this sort of deficitarian social arrangement. Yeah, deficitarian in many, many ways, uh, economically, politically, culturally, and, and so on. So what is it that can uh, help them to live in such a world. And then I said, I said, the first virtue is coping. You have to learn how to manage pressures that are very often unexpected. It's like sort of the, the, the climate crisis where it's not really the problem that it gets hotter. The problem is that you have these, these unusual weather conditions. Mm -hmm. yeah? So in everyday lives, people, you, you, have a, you have a couple of 
two people working 43 hours a week both and you try to have two children and now imagine how they manage their everyday lives it can be sort of from day to day chaos masses of creativity yeah yeah yeah, chaos so that's what i call coping Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. then uh, sort of i observe that in this generation the younger generation so there is a sort of almost uh, obligatory uh, uh, social norm that you have to be optimistic you call it hope i call it hoping it is like a sort of athlete the athlete sort of has to be optimistic as to the next uh, day when they compete. If, if they sort of give up themselves uh, before the battle, they are not good, good athletes. And, and people sort of reassure each other that they, we can make it. Yeah? We can make it. And, and the opposite is, uh, I, I'm, I'm sometimes being perceived as a pessimistic social theorist. And people say, you're a pessimist. I can see why. Yeah. Reading how will capitalism end. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. And I, <laughs> but, but personally, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not depressed. Quite to the contrary. When, when I hear that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton now, uh, or, or uh, Hillary Clinton um, uh, works for the average American uh, hard, hard-working uh, family <laughs> and, and gets 120,000 uh, dollars for a lecture at <laughs> Goldman Sachs. The, my reaction is, I begin to laugh. I, I think that's completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, hoping was the second thing. Uh, as a social norm, even if there's all good reasons to to see uh, that uh, uh, things are deteriorating, uh, you mu- must not say it. Yeah? And then comes doping. Now, doping is an interesting phenomenon. It is. I, as I say in this particular section, it is used for two purposes. One is to increase the performance of the performing classes. And I say in the book that uh, if, if the, the actors and the, and the uh, movie directors and the singers, that if they were put to jail in the same way as the street addicts, you, you couldn't uh, sort of shoot a movie outside, uh, outside a prison <laughs> anymore. They would all be there. And th- that's not only that's not only the culture industry; it's also banking uh, and, and so the amount of uh, medication that these people need in order to get through their day is, is unbelievable. And now look at the American and there's mental health epidemic in in in, in Western society, yeah, which, unbelie- unbelievable, unbelievable, which is treated. Yeah. In... So so it's it's used for increasing performance, and it's also used on at the other end of the social scale for uh, compensating non-performance. If, if you're a loser, you also need the stuff. Mm-hmm. And in our society, being a loser is a really serious thing. In the sort of social democratic uh, welfare state world, yeah, God, I mean, someone is a loser, but there's a lo- lots of things to help the guy to, to live a decent uh, mm-hmm. uh, life. In this hyper-competitive society that we're seeing, being a loser is, uh, is a bad thing. It, it's your fault. And, and so what do you do in order to, <laughs> to live? You need some... Uh, medication, yes, and and then of course shopping. Shopping is the most important uh, social activity of, of of people. Look at an American shopping mall, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I began to think, what well, what are the attitudes and the and the uh, activities, and the the worldviews that people that live in this uh, uh, in this uh, disorganized and increasingly disorganized society. How do they? How do they get along? And and I I thought of these four things. There's a great passage in the book. I mean, it was worrying, and, and obviously a more polemical and speculative yeah. part of the book, and it needs yeah. working out. But I thought yeah. Yeah. it was very interesting. So a really important concept in your book is that of of democracy. Um, and you you work with a definition of democracy that's broader than um, than that of election, freedom of association, and all the kind of political liberal freedoms. But you also include socio-economic institutions that allowed redistribution uh, and kept the social democratic uh, loser in inverted commas uh, functioning and, and sort of relatively happy human being. And you, you argue that this process of unfolding, this, this unfolding of, of capitalism over the past 40, 50 years has been this conflictual transformation of, of democratic capitalism. Now, democracy and capitalism, are, are, we are taught in high school, in, in university that they're natural partners 
Can you just explain a little bit as, about why you think they are not? Why are they in tension? Why are they not, you know, natural partners as, as, we, as, as we've been taught? Uh, remember that uh, right to vote came, came only uh, late in, in capitalism. Capitalism at the beginning had to be shielded from mass democracy uh, because democracy uh, works on a principle that we call uh, one man, today one man slash woman, a, a vote. One man, a vote. One man, one vote. And capitalism, capitalist markets work on the principle one dollar, one vote. So, of course, uh, if you have many dollars, you have a much, more, much larger impact on a market or in a capitalist economy than... Uh, in a, in, a, in a political system, there, uh, Bob Gates and you mm-hmm. uh, have the same uh, number of votes, mm-hmm. namely one. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, that means that there is a redistributive bias uh, in, in uh, a democracy. And uh, you cannot, it's impossible to even imagine a democratic uh, society without an egalitarian uh, bend, yes? and uh, uh, resulting in uh, a conflict between the outcomes of markets and the outcomes of votes. Now, after the Second World War, this was sort of throughout the Western world firmly institutionalized, not just in, uh, uh, the, uh, in everybody's right to vote, giving the non-capitalists a natural advantage over the capitalists, at least in numerical terms. But it was also, as you say, the standard model of democracy was not just voting. It was uh, industrial relations, that is collective bargaining, that is strong trade union representation. It was uh, a monetary policy that was more or less, but always in some way, Uh, affected by the politics of a society. It included a social welfare regime often based on contributions, not on taxes, that is mandatory contributions that you pay into, uh, let's say, the social security system, which make uh, uh, the system uh, sort of immune against uh, attempts to draw profit from it. Mm-hmm. Yes? It's, there is the Social Security Fund. Today, everybody in all countries, they are trying to somehow privatize this so that you can pull it into the hunting material. Yes? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was shielded from it. Now economists say, you're totally unnatural. But at the same time, it was an important part of, of uh, a system that permitted accumulation as well. Yeah, because that, that it is allowed true. consumption. We're, we're, talking, we're talking about a compromise. Yes, that, that was a compromise world, not socialism. But it was at least a compromise world. So, so uh, a democracy was about establishing conditions under which the newly licensed uh, uh, capitalists could be used to contribute to an acceptable uh, standard of living with the perspective of uh, ever yearly gradual incremental improvement. Yes, that was, so, so democracy was sort of inherently egalitarian in the sense of uh, uh, redistributive from below to the, to the. and uh, what we've seen in recent decades is that this egalitarian element is being driven out of democracy. And now you can name the, uh, the elements of this process. Trade unions have disappeared. Um, social security is in- increasingly being privatized. More than that, or in addition to this, uh, central banks are now completely independent. In other words, Unions can no longer exert pressure on monetary policy to be what we used to call accommodating towards high wage demand. Impossible, because the, the, the central bank is doing what they want to do. 
So politics slash democracy can't influence yeah, yeah, the yeah. levers yeah, they, that are important to change. Sort of emptied of content. And you say that democratization today is being fobbed off with democratizing institutions that have no power to decide anything, yeah. uh, which is something that especially uh, resounded with me. I think my colleagues and I, we would definitely agree with you in your analysis of the de-democratization of, of politics um, and, and economics over the past sort of 40 or 50 years. Uh, maybe a, a more contentious mm-hmm. point is what the possibilities for democratic politics are mm-hmm. uh, in the future. Yeah, now, yeah. You wrote Buying Time and, and, and even also How Will Capitalism End? Perhaps at, a, at this time, especially Buying Time, at this time where, as Colin Crouch uh, said, uh, you know, neoliberalism was kind of going on in zombie fashion and mm-hmm. no alternative mm-hmm. seemed possible. Since then, there's been, um, you know, the rise of, of Corbyn in the UK, yeah, yeah. parties like Podemos in Spain, Syriza yeah. with its capitulation yeah. in, in 2015. I would but, even include the, the right-wing populists in, and the right, in, in this. The, what, you, what has happened since I, um, uh, since I thought about these things, in, 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 or since I published these, these two books, is obviously that the attempt by... Uh, the new social engineers, you can call them, to reorganize societies in such a way that people are really happy with coping, hoping, and so on, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, hits resistance. And it expresses itself in very uh, sort of vague ways. Karl Polanyi understood this when he analyzed the counter-movement against capitalist rationalization in the 1930s. It can come from the right, from the traditionalists, who see their traditional ways of life being disrupted, or it can come from the left, uh, and uh, and that is an additional sort of problem for uh, for uh, a left strategy. What to do with the voters of AfD, of UKIP, of uh, Donald Trump? Yes, uh, in America, you forgot to mention Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, um, Sanders is it's an interesting case, and I will say something on Corbyn in a second. Sanders is an interesting case in the following way. Um, uh, there is now some evidence that uh, Sanders might have won uh, the, uh, uh, the, the primaries against Clinton if the Democratic machine hadn't uh, been so biased against him. There were all sorts of machinations to prevent him winning. Uh, had he won uh, the, the, the primary, uh, it is not at all impossible that he would have defeated Trump. Think of the swing states where, where Trump won and where, where Clinton never set foot because, because he couldn't... Uh, she hates workers, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> so she works day in day out for them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the Sanders would certainly have gone to Wisconsin and and to Ohio and to Pennsylvania, yes. And that were the states that needed to be won. In other words, in other words, what what I'm saying is, it is not so entirely clear the the the, the nature, the the character of this counter movement, but it is underway. So is that a reason to hope? Because also, if you look at the structural dimension of your argument, yeah. what could a Sanders White House do okay. or an Iglesias? Very, very good, very good point. Iglesias, I mean, I mean the Southern, uh, for example, the, the the Southern populists, at the same time, put their hope on or place their hope on the European Union of all places. Yeah, yeah, and and they want to remain in the in the uh, euro which is basically a German Northern European instrument to re-educate them uh, and become decent uh, capitalist citizens. Yes. Now, but your question is, on the premises that I lay out there, and my point here is that one needs to think in longer political or historical perspective. Had Sanders been elected uh, last year in in the United States, um, he would have faced the uh, uh, Republican uh, Congress. He would have faced uh, uh, big money in Wall Street. 
and the military establishment. Incidentally, the military establishment has even re-educated Trump with respect to Russia. Yeah, mm -hmm. the the the, the yeah. deep American today, yeah, the deep American state uh, sort of hits back, and they want their favorite enemy uh, uh, to continue, which is Russia. Yeah, and so uh, no, what what uh, Sanders would have meant is this would have been a disruption of American politics, maybe a severe disruption. And the way in which management theory today or market theory uses the concept of disruption to describe uh, what happens in the economy, I would appropriate that concept. And I would say in the stale and uh, reified and emptied of content politics of today, what we need is a lot of disruption. Yeah? And Corbyn, I see, as exactly that. Uh, the way in which uh, he was elected leader of the Labour Party, namely by opening up the process to a vote, bringing in people who, on, who were on the margin uh, of the Labour Party, and they could simply register and then they sort of could vote for the leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I would want, uh, for example, the Social Democratic Party of Germany to learn mm -hmm. from. But of course, mm -hmm. they learn from it in, in negatively. They will never do that because they, they see what happens. And, and then you have this sort of year... But it wasn't something that the Labour Party, um, the elite of the Labour Party did. It, yeah. was, it yeah. was a grassroots disruptive... That's exactly yeah. what I think. Yes, that's exactly what I think. And and then after and, and does this disruption come equally from the left or from the yeah, right? So yeah. Brexit is, is. Do you see Brexit yeah, as an equally creative absolutely. kind yeah, of disruption? Creative, creative. At, at least at least it forces a discussion, not just in Britain, but beyond Britain, on the remaining tools of national uh, uh, politics and policy to provide at least some sort of cover against the global market. Think of, of the following, and these political events sort of uh, stimulate thinking among the thinkers, so to speak. For example, this guy, Larry Summers, yeah, who used to be what I call the, uh, the chief engineer of the engine room of, of financial capitalism. Yeah? He now writes articles on responsible nationalism, <laughs> saying that if you want to prevent more Trumps sort of taking over in more countries, you have to remember the tools of the national of national democracies to do something for their uh, minor uh, citizens, yes, for, for the lower, uh, for the people who had been forgotten by us. Yes? Take Danny Rodrik at, at Harvard, who is now explaining why complete integration in the global economy and national democracy are incompatible, mm -hmm. while at the same time, global democracy is impossible. This is a strong idea in the book, the idea of, of left internationalism as a, as a dangerous chimera. Uh, is the left undermining itself? Or a different form of, of, of left internationalism. I think left internationalism has been uh, hijacked, captured by liberal internationalism. In, in the in the uh, person of Tony Blair and and, and, and others, who who sort of uh, mistook uh, the internationalism of labor to be the same as the globalization of capital, the the way I express this is that now workers are being are being told that it is their duty under each international solidarity to expose their jobs to competition from people in countries where they get only one third of their wage. Yeah? That, I say, is liberal internationalism. Uh, labor uh, uh, internationalism, internationalism of the working class, was always to look for a politics that protects us from being pitched against each other in competitive markets. Now, how do you fill this with life today? That's a good question. Mm. And uh, all sorts of intelligence on the part of, of, of the left should be mobilized to think about this. It has something to do with free trade 
but not just in manufacturers, but also in agriculture. If the free trade and agriculture regime that the European Union, together with the International Monetary Fund, has imposed on West Africa, that destroys local subsistence farming. Because we subsidize sort of cheese and milk and all of these things, and then we sell them uh, there, uh, crowding out the local producers. Yes, that is a form of, uh, of sort of internationalism that we must fight against. And at the same time, we must fight against the sort of internationalism that kicks out uh, British plumbers, English plumbers from their job because you import plumbers who work for one half of the wage. So you need some sort of wage regime that makes it uh, obligatory uh, for plumbers coming from wherever they want to come not to underbid the standards of social wage and of, of, of wages and social insurance that have been fought for in the country. And so on and so on and so on. So yes, we have to learn to think about building into uh, international economics reassurances that they are solidaristic and not liberal competitive. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, uh, Professor Strick. Um, just as a final question, if you have uh, any advice for people that, of my generation um, that are coping, hoping, doping and shopping their way to, to, uh, to capitalism's multiple morbidities playing out, what would that be? I'm a scholar, so my advice would be read as much as you can, uh, think it over <laughs> as best you can, and make the results known to as many people as you can. <laughs> Okay, we'll work hard on that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.